Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we ended our study last week for uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3 with a funeral. At the death of Saul and a war against the Philistines, Saul died, three of his sons died, and there was one son left. His name was Ish-bosheth. And last week we found out that David was crowned after that war, after Saul's death. He was crowned king over Hebron in southern Israel. And in the north, Saul's old commander Abner crowned Ishbosheth the king in northern Israel. So as we enter into chapter four today, there is a kind of split nation. Ishbosheth is king in the north, David is king in the south, and each king has their own military commander. David is over Joab, and Ishbosheth is over Abner. At the end of last week, we ended with a funeral because there was a beef between Joab and Abner. Abner killed Joab's brother, Joab got revenge and killed Abner. And as we enter into chapter four, the two kings are reigning in the north and the south, but the king of the north doesn't have a commander over his military anymore. As we enter into chapter four, Abner is dead. It's only Ishbosheth and a couple rowdy tribal warlords who, who are head over raiding parties under Ishbosheth, but there's no organized military. And David is left with Joab and his military intact. So with that in mind, let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter four. We're gonna to go to verse one. It says, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now why was he dismayed? Because if you don't have a commander overseeing the army, then you essentially have no army. David's army is very strong and his commander is still alive and the king in the north, Saul's son Ishbosheth, doesn't have anyone to lead his armies and he's not a strong man. He's a weak man. We're about to find out what happens to him. Verse two says Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana and the name of the other was Rechab. They were sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin, from Be'eroth. From Be'eroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Be'erothites fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. And just a little backstory. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, about them falling in the battle against the Philistines, came to Jezreel where he was living. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell out of her arms and he became lame, couldn't walk. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now let's pause there. Because what the author is doing is giving us background. But the reason why he's giving us a background is important for what we'll read later. This background is similar to what we saw last week in 2 Samuel chapter three, where David marries more women and has more sons. You have this list of like, okay, well I see David's like, he's flourishing, he's growing as a king, but he's also making these what seems like really bad decisions on the marriage front. And he's having all these kids. Yes, those are bad decisions and those decisions will haunt him later in the story. The author wants you to know that there is something on the shelf that we're gonna come back to. Just behold it. Behold how, how stupid it looks and we'll come back to it, all right? The same thing is happening here. Before we get into the story, the author wants you to know three key things. First, Israel is weak under the king Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And the reason why he's weak is because he doesn't have a military commander. That's the first thing he wants you to know. The second thing is that there is one living descendant of Saul be, besides Ishbosheth. 
Because something's about to happen to Ishbosheth, and you're going to think like, oh, well, that's the end of Saul's dynasty. Everything's done. Everything's gone. But we're going to find out in a minute that's not the case because there is this one living descendant, Mephibosheth. He is still alive. So that's the second thing. One, Ishbosheth's kingdom is weak. Two, there is this other living descendant of Saul, which is important because do you remember what David promised to Jonathan before he died? I'm going to take care of your ancestors. So this is, we're going to come back to this. It's just important to know. And the third thing is that there's these two men. Their names are Ba'ana and Rakab. They are currently leaders under Ishbosheth, but they are violent men. And these violent men are about to exploit the weakness of Ishbosheth. Let's find out what's going to happen in verse 5. The sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Ba'ana, set out. About the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came in the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, escaped. Now, verse 7 is going to give us a more detailed version of what happened in verse 6. This happens a lot in Hebrew. The story is told, and in the very next verse or the very next chapter, we're going to dive in even deeper, and you're going to get more detail. Verse 7, when they came into the house as he was laying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So they didn't just stab him in the stomach. They stabbed him in the stomach, they killed him, and then they cut his head off. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night. So they fled in the evening, so no one could see them. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Now, if you've been following the story, you know this is a terrible mistake. They said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So these guys are using the Lord's name to validate a murder they just committed in order to put David in the throne, on the throne with the crown. Had they read their Bibles, they would have known that this was a very foolish thing to do. Why? Because David says to Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, Cliff's notes, I haven't needed boneheads like you coming to tell me that you did God's work for him. He takes me out of every adversary and I'm completely confident in trusting him. In fact, there was this one time when someone told me, verse 10, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. Well, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. So, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him. And they cut off their hands and feet and hanged him beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So two cowards murder the king and bring his head to David. I call them cowards because they killed Ishbosheth while he was taking a nap, and they fled with his head through the night so no one would see. That's coward behavior. These guys are not like valiant men, mighty warriors, they're cowards. And they were convinced that what they were doing was God's work. They came and they said, the Lord has done this thing. 
But here's the interesting thing about the story. When these men brought the head to David, what they wanted was the same thing David wanted. David wants to be king because God wants David to be king. So the end goal of this whole story is that David will step into his rightful role that God has ordained from him, for him. He will become king. Now you've got two guys showing up and they seemingly want the same thing. David, we want you to be king. Look what we did to make it happen. What is the author trying to get us to understand? When we have two characters, well three, one character who wants what God wants, and the other two characters also want what God wants, but just because the end is the same does not mean that the process to get to that end is the same. See, that's what the author is trying to get you to understand. That the idea that in your heart, you could want the end goal that God also wants, that everybody wants, but you could be guilty of taking shortcuts to get there. Because there is more at stake than just arriving at a destination. How you got there matters too. The idea that both of these guys felt like they could take matters into their own hands to get the same outcome that God wants is dangerous. And it's dangerous because what happens is when David, if David were to take this offer from these guys, man, thank you for taking out my enemy and now I get to be crowned king and now I'm gonna be king. For the rest of David's rule, he's going to be reminded of how he got that throne. It wasn't because God gave you that throne. It's because two guys murdered somebody and gave you that throne. So technically it wasn't even God that gave you the throne, it was these two guys. And now you're in debt to these two guys. See how that works? Here's the funny thing about shortcuts. Shortcuts always haunt you. Whether it's in the form of somebody coming behind you and saying, you know, you didn't really earn that promotion. I know what you did to get that. Or if it haunts in the same idea of, of, of the people that you stepped on in order to get ahead, now, you're, now let's say you're a manager over them and, and, and you have to build a rapport and lead them, but, but you're the one who stepped on them to get where you are. Shortcuts always haunt people. And this is what David knew that if he was to take this throne and this offer, how he got it would affect him for the rest of his life. And to us, it is an invitation to consider how we're making decisions in our own lives. If you've got a, a guy like David who's modeling, not just for his people, he is modeling for Israel, but through scripture, the Holy Spirit is allowing us to see him and to model our lives after decisions like this, because this is the godly way, we have to consider this decision I'm making right now to get to this end goal, does it honor me or does it honor God? See, we live in a culture where the process doesn't matter. We live in a culture where there is no shortage of salesmen trying to sell you a shortcut. But here's the problem, every shortcut comes with a cost. Going through the process comes with a cost. When the enemy comes to you and says, if you take this shortcut, you'll get the end goal, and there's no cost, he's lying to you. There's always a cost. The question is, do you wanna pay the, the price once you step into it, or do you wanna pay the price in the process and go through it and then step into it? Now, we're, we're talking about all kinds of things here. This, this is applicable when it comes to things like leadership at the church level. This is applicable in the home. This is applicable in politics. This is applicable into you stepping into the things that God has told you maybe 10 years ago. He said this would be a thing for you. 
I want you to do this. You're gonna, you're gonna step into this role, I want. Cool, the moment you said, okay, God, I want you to, or God's like, you know, you're gonna be a missionary, or I'm sending you to this part of the world and I want you to be a pastor over a church. Oh, cool, he said it, let's just do it tomorrow. Forgetting the fact that it took 22 years for David to step into his rightful anointing, This is what I'm talking about. The Lord says something, or there is a picture that you have in your mind of what a perfect life looks like, and it's it's this marriage, and it's kids, and it's this 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 little. It's a big house out somewhere, you know, couple of cars, and kids are running out, and you got some chickens in the backyard. You got a dog that's like the best dog ever. You got this picture. You're like, okay, how do I get there? Well, there's a couple ways you could get there. You could get there by starting on your face in prayer and asking yourself, Lord, am I the kind of person that someone would want to marry? Am I ready for this? What do you need to do inside of me to get me ready for this thing that I feel like you want me to to, to walk in? There's another way. You just start hitting the club. Or or, or the, the Christian club, you go to church. And you, you literally, you're just looking for any single woman who will give you any ounce of attention, and she's it. You don't, you don't, you're not ready for marriage, she's not ready for marriage. Just the two of you want that same end goal, and you're ignoring the process that gets you there, and five years in, you're gonna be coming to me talking about divorce. How do I know that? Because I've seen it a million times. This, the, the, this story, chapter four, is reminding us of the importance of the process. And it's not the first time the author has done this, but he does it over and over and over to remind us of the importance of not forgetting the process. All of us in here, until you arrive in heaven and stand before a holy God and enter into glory, you're still in the process. I don't care how young you are, if you're 15, you're in the process. You can't say, well, I haven't started yet. Oh, you have started. And the fact that you're saying you haven't started yet means you're already behind. (laughs) If you're 91 years old, you're still in the process. You are not sitting around just waiting to meet the king in glory. You're still breathing because he's still putting breath in your lungs and there's still work to be done here. Now, I don't know what that work is. That's the beauty of my job. I just get to tell you there's work and then you have to go figure out the work. But the joy is is that all of us can rest in this reality that there is a process and shortcuts are no good. But you need to be reminded that there is no shortage of people who are always trying to offer you a shortcut and the person who is always the best salesman at this is you. And if you're not careful, you will convince yourself that the shortcut is worth it and you will rob yourself of something you were supposed to learn in the middle of the process. Now. Let's go to chapter five, pick up verse one. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So David finally steps into his third anointing and he's king over all Israel. To give you an idea of what he was king over, I wanna show you this map. Now we're gonna start off like we usually do, zoom in here on the Middle East. And today, we're gonna pause on that section of the map because what you're looking at is how, oh, let's go back a little bit. The first section of the map is, there we go. So the first section of the map, this is how the tribes were split up among Israel, all right? Now I did my best with colors. I know some of you guys, you, 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 like, 
Some of you are colorblind. You're like, there, how many colors are there? I just, I just see a bunch of... Is it not pausing? Pause. There we go. All right, so uh, they're color-coded here to show the 12 tribes that are currently functioning. Now, if you go back and you read your Bible, like, where's Levi? Levi never had land. Levi were the priests, and they lived off of the offerings that everyone else brought. But what you can see here is the section down here in the south. This is Judah, one of the largest tribes. This is where David was king over. He was crowned king over Judah, Hebron in the south, and all of these northern tribes, Dan, Reuben, all the way up here to Manasseh. Uh, we got East Manasseh and West Manasseh. All of the northern tribes, that's what Ishbosheth was king over. And as we come into chapter five, we're told that David is now crowned king over all of Israel. So all of these tribes, the northern tribes, have come down to Hebron and they've told David, we affirm what God told you that you are gonna be king over us. It's time. Saul's family is gone and now it's time for you to be king. Now if you play through the rest of that, there are three key cities that are gonna pop up and one location that I wanted to show you. So down here in southern Judah, this is Hebron. Hebron is where David has been king. The new location for the kingdom that we're gonna learn about in chapter five, David is going to pick a new city, it's called Jerusalem. And I actually messed up on the map a little bit. I, I made a, I was making this map last night and I just threw the names of the tribes up there without the colors and I felt like it was too crowded so I went back and did it. But what I forgot to do was actually cut Judah a little bit lower. Jerusalem is on the border of Judah and Benjamin and the tribes of the north and that's why David fick, uh, picked this location. Because if David was going to keep his, his uh, capital city in Hebron down in South Judah, you run the risk of the northern tribes getting jealous that all the cool stuff is happening down in Hebron. So what David decides is he decides to pick a city up closer towards the northern kingdoms. It's a halfway point. There's other reasons why he picked the city. I'll cover those in a minute. But location was a big one. So Jerusalem is actually a little bit north. It's actually up on the border of like Judah and Benjamin. And then there's this other city up here, Tyre. It's up in northern Asher. Eventually, it'll be part of another kingdom when the northern kingdoms fall. But Tyre is going to be referenced here today. And there's another one. This is, this is an interesting one. The Valley of Rephaim. Now, if you've been tracking with me and you like all this weird nerdy stuff I keep talking about, Nephilim and giants and all this stuff, you're like, Valley of Rephaim, what is this? That was, oh, that was, my, that was my impression of you. Um, the Valley of Rephaim is a very, very interesting place. We'll get to that at the end, but I wanted you to know that the Valley of Rephaim is actually southwest of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem sits here and it just kind of, it's a valley that just kind of touches the very southwest of Jerusalem. So that's why they're both pointing to the same locations. It's there. I'll put this map up uh, later today and I'll fix the location of, uh, of the tribe of Judah so it's more accurate. All right. So <clears throat> in verse two, we're told that David uh, is met by all of the kings or the, 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 tri the heads of the tribes of the north. And when they meet, he t they tell him the first thing he says in verse two, you shall be a shepherd over my people Israel. Now this is an interesting phrase. This is something that Samuel told David he would be. This is something that Samuel told Saul he would be, but Saul never became. I've said this a couple times. The best leaders are shepherds. And the, and the kings or the tribes of the north, the heads of the tribes of the north are coming to David saying, hey, we want you to be king over us. We want you to be a shepherd the way God promised. This introduction is a complete shift from the way that Saul has been running things. To use the phrase, David, we want you to be a shepherd over us, is an acknowledgement that the northern tribes wanted what God wanted, a leader that would shepherd the people. Now, why do we keep talking about shepherd? What's the big deal about shepherds? Because shepherds exist solely for the sheep. The sheep don't exist for the shepherds. And that's the paradigm God wants his leaders understanding. It started all the way back here. It started older in the Old Testament, but as soon as we started getting kings, this is some of the first language God uses for kings over his nations. You will be a shepherd to my people. These people don't exist for you. 
They aren't there to puff you up, to, 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 to give to you, to make sure your life is fat and happy. They exist for the sole purpose of being cared for. You are there to look after them. They are not there to look after you. And that paradigm is carried over into the New Testament, and that's why the word pastor is rooted in the idea of being a shepherd, because churches don't exist for the pastor. The pastors are there to serve the church. That's the whole point. That's the whole thing. And if, you, if God ever moves you across the country and um, you're out of Tallahassee and you're looking for a new church, that is a warning sign. When you walk in the door, if you get the perception from the way that the church is talking that the church exists solely for the pastor, just go ahead and just turn out, turn around 180 and just go the other, just walk right out the door. Don't even bother. Don't even come back the second week. The pastors are there to serve the people. The people aren't there to serve the pastors. And so what, what David does is he comes into his role. One of the first things he wants to do as coming into uh, his role as king and as shepherd is to find a location that is strategic for the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, but also God delights in. There's a city that has deep roots all the way back to Abraham making a sacrifice of his son that goes all the way back to this, this uh, king named Melchizedek who was a priest king in this place named Salem. There's this city called Jerusalem that has rich roots and I know that God likes it. I want it, I like it because God likes it and it's in the right location. So David makes a decision to move the capital city to Jerusalem. There's only one problem. There's a group of people living there called the Jebusites. Now the thing about the Jebusites is the Jebusites were one of the groups that Moses, that God told Moses in Deuteronomy 7.1 that they were under destruction. There was a group of seven tribes when they came into the promised land. Remember we talked about all the, the giant ancestors and all this stuff? One of the tribes who was under destruction that Israel never really got rid of was the Jebusites and the Jebusites are living in Jerusalem and David wants Jerusalem. So let's pick up the story in verse six. The king and his men went to Jerusalem again, excuse me, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come into here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lime and the blind, excuse me, the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. So the author is referring to a phrase that was common at the time of writing this, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house, and the origin coming back to David wanting Jerusalem and the attack that the Jebusites used against David. Now I'll explain the blind and the lame. There's two kind of major uh, interpretations of that. I'll get into that in just a second, but let's finish this down to verse 16. David lived in the stronghold called, and called it the city of David and, built, uh, and David built the city around from the Milo inward. And David became, great, became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. And that phrase, the God of hosts, is a Hebrew word, Yahweh. The God of angel armies. Yahweh Sebaot the God of angel armies was with David. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. 
My daughter's been making a book of names for her kids. So go ahead and write in some of those. Those are real, those are jewels. All right, now let's get back to verse eight. David wants Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is impenetrable according to the Jebusites. It's not a city you're getting in. And the reason why they say that it's not a city you're getting in is because they tell David, the blind and the lame will ward you off. What does that mean? Well, there's two major interpretations. Most Christian commentaries that you pick up are going to say that the blind and the lame were actually blind and lame people. And what the Jebusites were saying is that David, this city of Jerusalem is so fortified that even the blind and the lame could fight you. We'll just put them in the battle and this city is so fortified, they could fight you off and you're not taking this city. First interpretation. If you go back and you read first century writings like Josephus, who was kind of a commentator, a Jewish commentator in the first century, not a Christian, but wrote a lot of commentary in the first century. He says that what the Jebusites actually did was they put blind and lame people up on the walls as a way to mock them and mock other people. But if you go back in and you read the rabbinic text, so when, we, when, when there was an archeological discovery in the Dead Sea, you probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a lot of material that was found. And a lot of the material that was found was actually commentary, common commentary written by Second Temple Jewish writers. So the period from after Babylon, when they built the Second Temple, to the point where Jesus was born, that period of time, a ton of literature and commentary was written during that time by Jewish rabbis and teachers at the time. And the predominant theme at this time was that when the Jebusites said the blind and the lame will ward you off. What they were talking about is the idols that they had crafted and placed strategically around the city and in the walls. That's the blind and the lame. It's also the reason why David said, I hate the blind and the lame. He's not saying I hate literally the blind and the lame. He's saying, he's using the same phrasing that the Jebusites are using. These idols, this goes back to Psalm 115, five, where the psalmist says, um, you guys make idols uh, and they have eyes but they can't see. Uh, and they have mouths and they can't speak and they have hands but they can't touch and they have legs but they can't walk. And anyone who worships them becomes like them. The Jebusites are saying, we've surrounded our city and it is a fortress because we are protected by false, well, they don't say false, it is protected by our gods. Our idols are protecting our city. And David says, I hate your gods. In fact, my God is the God of angel armies, so you can add 500 more idols and you're still not gonna withstand the onslaught that my God is bringing your way. And so what he does is he tells his men, we're going to take that city and here's how we're going to do it. Climb up the, the well, climb up into the city, open the gate, and then we're going to storm the gate. And that's how we're going to take Jerusalem. And they did it. Now, what's interesting to me, in verse 10, when it says the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts is with David, and we have this imagery of idols surrounding the city, this imagery carries over into verses 17 through 25. So let's read that and we'll finish there. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And gave, David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. This isn't something David did, this is something the Lord did for David in the midst of the battle. The God of angel armies intervened in the battle and broke through the enemy like a flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of breaking through. 
And the Philistines left their idols there. Okay, so now not just the Jebusites are surrounding their city with idols. Now you've got the Philistines. They bring their idols out into war, and they got whooped so bad, they left before they could collect their idols off the ground. And David said to his men, carry them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord again. And he said, and this is what the Lord said, you shall not go up but go around to their rear and come against them opposite of the balsam trees. Listen to this. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David and the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Now, as we read this, if you want to read a little bit more, there's stories about David's mighty man and a little bit uh, more about the story in 1 Chronicles 11 through 12. But as we read the story in 2023, our modern worldview leaves the story kind of ordinary. Okay, well, we've, we've got a battle. David fights the Philistines and David wins. That's great. Good for David. Yay, David. But if you were an ancient Hebrew... You had a worldview that was a little bit different than our worldview, and you would have read this very differently. You would have read this and seen so much more. There are three clues that illuminate to us there is more going on here than just David winning battles. The first is the idea of the Philistines bringing their idols out to war. The second is where the war is in the valley of the Rephaim. And the third is the command that God gives David as a cue for battle. Listen for the marching in the tops of the trees. Now let me break this down for you. This whole story from verses 17 to 25, from a biblical, historic, ancient Hebrew worldview, this story is not just about physical warfare, it's about spiritual warfare too. And how in the mind of an ancient Hebrew, these two were not separate, they were the same. When ancient people went to war, there was a, phys a physical battle that was waged, and there was also a spiritual battle that was being waged. And David was aware of this. In the ancient world, when an ancient people would craft an idol, they'd go out to the woods, they'd chop down a tree, they'd bring the tree home. Isaiah, Isaiah makes fun of this, but he takes the tree home, cuts some of the wood up and uses it to warm his house and then takes a little, another little bit of it and carves it into an idol. Now, ancient people weren't stupid. They knew that these idols were idols that they made. They were made out of wood. Like, I just made this thing. It's got no inherent power because I made it. Or they would go out and they would take some stone and they would carve it. And so you, now you've got this idol and it's sitting here, but it doesn't really have any power. The next step that would take place for an ancient person that just crafted an idol is it needs to be filled with power. And so a ceremony would take place where they would invite the spirits around them to indwell or fill this idol in order to give it power. Power in order to bless them power over their enemy. But make no mistake, ancient people believe that there was a very vibrant spirit realm and you can invite these spirit entities to fill these idols that you had crafted. Now we come to the Valley of Rephaim. So now you're starting to see why the idols are so important because they weren't just little trinkets. It's not a rabbit's foot you carry around. It's, it's an actual, a, a picture or an, an idol. It's a carved image of your God and you're asking your God to fill that image as you go into battle to empower your people. Give your soldiers supernatural strength in order to conquer your enemy. That was common. But why the Valley of Rephaim? Here's another weird one. Now, I'm gonna get weird on you. Are you ready? Another thing we discovered during our archeological discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is an abundance of literature written during the Second Temple period about the cosmology of the spirit world. Now they got really weird. They were like naming angels and there was like a whole hierarchy, like they got super into it. And lots of different sects of Judaism believe different things about the spiritual world. For example, we know that in the New Testament, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were constantly arguing about whether you would actually be raised from the dead or not. 
That was a disagreement. But one thing we discovered from all these writings from the Dead Sea Scrolls is that there was one thing that all of the sects of Judaism agreed on, and that was what an unclean spirit was. You ready for this? There was a theology in the first century church, it was a theology borrowed from Second Temple Judaism that there was fallen angels. And these demonic powers would at times possess people, would oversee realms and, 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 and different regions of the world. There was cosmic warfare going on. They had a very robust understanding from the book of Daniel of angels at war in the heavenlies. And we can't see that stuff, but it's happening. But there was another belief that all of these different sects of Judaism had. And it was this, that when you killed a Nephilim, now, if you don't know what a Nephilim is, back to Genesis 6, it is the offspring of a human woman and a fallen angel. They had children, and these children were considered giants. Literal, they were giants, like eight, nine feet tall. Goliath was a descendant of these. And these Nephilim had children before and after the flood, according to what Genesis 6 says. And some of these offspring, this is where we get uh, Goliath, the giant, from. But the belief system from the second temple period is that when you killed a giant, because they were human flesh, but their spirit came from their dad's side of the family, that spirit was cursed to roam the earth. The Valley of Rephaim is called the Valley of Giants. Rephaim is a word that means giants. It's also translated as titans. It's also translated in, in Isaiah in a couple places as the shade or the shadow. The idea being, this is second temple period, is that when you killed a giant, their spirit was cursed to roam the earth and the Philistines would go to the valley of these dead giants and they would ask the spirits of these dead titan giants to fill their idols and give them supernatural power to go to war against God's people. That's what's going on here. And so when, God, when David asked God, hey, we're gonna go out to war against the Philistines, should we go out to war against them? This is what God says. Oh yes, my man, I want you to go out to war with them, but here's the cue. I want you to go around the, the backside and stand in the midst of the balsam trees and while you're standing there, I want you to listen for the sound of marching in the trees above your head. Who marches in trees? Angels march in trees. Now by the time you get into the New Testament, the New Testament was written in Greek, there's not all these, Greek doesn't have all these Hebrew words for Nephilim and Anakin and Rephaim and all these dead giants and fallen angels and angels and seraphim. And so the word either gets translated just as the Hebrew word in Greek or it gets lumped into these two categories. And that's why in the New Testament, you've got the good guys are pretty much considered angels and the bad guys are pretty much considered demons. In Greek, the angels are angelos, angels. And in, in Greek, the demons, essentially all of the bad guys, diamoninum, demons. So what you have here is a whole cosmology of these ancient people not just leaning in on their own brute strength. The Philistines weren't just a bunch of CrossFit guys who were bigger than the other team. They were a bunch of guys who were filled with demonic power wanting to overtake God's people in spiritual and physical warfare. And so when David goes out to war, he's whipping up on some Philistines, but God shows up to the battle and God is whipping up on Philistines and demonic idols. That's the beauty of the picture that you have here. That's completely lost on us because there's so much knowledge that we don't have. But as you start bringing this forward, all of a sudden this picture starts making more sense because what you have is the people of God taking joy in not the fact that they have a king who is not just going to take shortcuts, but he's going to be a good king. Not just in the fact that they have a king now who is a good shepherd and will care for his people, 
but has a king who is keenly aware of the two battlegrounds that we are at war in on a regular basis. That does war in the physical realm and has the Lord of hosts on his side doing battle in the spiritual realm. Now why am I talking about? You, you might be just like, man, I have never heard so much about giants and demons uh, since I started coming to this church. What is your deal? I get it, you're probably asking that. Well, here's my deal. We are living in the final days. And the New Testament is clear on what's happening in the final days. All of this demonic, the activity that, that you see bits and pieces in the Old Testament, it's only ramping up every morning when you wake up. It's only getting worse. And if you don't believe me, watch the news. We're told in 1 Timothy 4 that at the end of the days, many people are gonna fall away because they're gonna believe teachings of demons. We're told in Thessalonians that what's coming before the return of the king is a great falling away and a rise of an antichrist figure that's gonna deceive the whole nations. What I don't want for you is for you to be deceived. So here's why I talk about it. I don't talk about this because I'm interested in demons. I don't want to know angels' names. I don't really care about the hierarchy of all that stuff. What I do care about is you understanding that there is a robust spiritual warfare going on around you that you are not blind to. I want you aware of it. I'm not interested in you getting into spiritual warfare and starting to do funky dances and like getting on your face and thinking you're going to get in the war. That, that war isn't for you. You step into that war, you're going to get your rear end kicked. Stay out of it, okay? That's for the Lord of hosts. He oversees that battle and he's winning it. What I don't want is for you or your children to start falling into the, the traps that have been laid for you or your children in the form of popular secular music that has demonic background influences. It's real. I don't want you giving your eyes and your heart and your ears to movies and movie stars that are spending their free time going down to jungles to, to do some drug, to open up their minds and so that they can be more enlightened. They're participating in a spiritual realm. They're communing with demonic entities that has been forbidden by scripture and you look up to these people because they're good at baseball. And you think, because I look up to this guy and this is the kind of stuff he does, then I can go and do that stuff too. No, that's dangerous. I don't want you saying yes to your kid who wants to go over and like, oh, we'll go hang over in you know, Joey's house and we're gonna go over and do whatever. And then Joey, he thinks it's cool to pull out some tarot cards or start doing a Ouija board. Hey man, you wanna see something cool? No, I want your kid to say, no, I don't wanna see something cool. No, I don't wanna play around with magic. No, I don't wanna play around with the demonic realm. No. There has been such an increase because this world is so hungry for spirituality. There's been such an increase in people going, going into meditation, starting part to, we want to commune with interdimensional beings. We want to talk to all the stuff that else because no one's happy with their life. Everyone's depressed and they want something existential and greater than their own life. And if the church would just talk about the spiritual nature of the world in which we live in, then people wouldn't have to go find it in the world and be lied to by demonic entities. That's why I talk about it, because I don't want you to be duped. I don't want you be, being told that here's where you go find truth. There's hidden knowledge that the Bible hasn't given you because it's an old book, and if you just get into this stuff, you're gonna find true meaning. You're not. You're gonna find yourself completely possessed by demonic entities, and they're gonna be running your household. You gotta be careful what, mu what music you listen to. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to, to, to what, what kind of uh, information is coming in through, through your screens. You gotta pay attention to what movies you watch. You have to be on guard. And the reason why is because we're in two war, we're in, there's two battlefields. One is your own flesh. Paul talks about putting the old man to death. There is a constant war in your own flesh where you've gotta put that old man to death daily. That's one battlefield. But the other battlefield is a spiritual battlefield. And if you ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist, then the, the, half the book of Ephesians isn't even for you. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, what for? What do you mean there's fiery darts of the enemy? Wasn't that figurative? You ignore an entire other battlefield. And here's the thing about the battlefields. 
Satan's battlefield, the spiritual realm, he preys on your physical weakness. So if you do want to participate in spiritual warfare, here's how it goes. Put your flesh to death. That's the greatest spiritual warfare you can participate in. Because if you come to a place where you start telling your flesh, no, you're not going to have that. Then Satan, when he comes to tempt you in that other battlefield, he's got nothing to tempt you with because you don't want it in the first place. If your affections have been changed and stirred, then the stuff that he previously used to tempt you with, it doesn't work, and guess what? You've got victory in both battlefields. So this is the beauty of David. You've got David, who is a king, who is a shepherd king. He's a king who, who, who doesn't care about the process. He's perfectly comfortable. He, he's okay to wait. But he's also a king who understands this robust spiritual warfare we're in. He's a foreshadow of a better king. King Jesus, who was completely comfortable with your process. He was comfortable with his process. He submitted himself to earthly parents. His parents were created by God and then he submitted to his own creation. He was perfectly fine with that. He was also a shepherd. But the expectation that the Messiah would do spiritual warfare would where did that come from? The idea that Jesus the Messiah would cast demons out, cast out unclean spirits. That's that phrase, unclean spirits. It comes from disembodied Nephilim spirits back from Second Temple literature. That's why there's a difference between Jesus casting out demons and Jesus cast, casting out unclean spirits. There's another word for those spirits, but I won't say it here because I'm, I'm a man of character. Come see me after service and then I'll say it. But the idea that the Messiah would have authority over the spiritual realm is because if David had authority in a spiritual sense because the God of the angel armies was on his side, then how can a descendant of David not also exercise that same authority? So this is the good news. You serve a king who is over all and there's nothing for you to be afraid of. The more news you watch and the more temptation you have to give in to fear and to turn back to that stuff, you overcome that with the God that you serve. Look at Jesus, look at Jesus. When you're freaked out, look at Jesus. When you're afraid, look at Jesus. He's the king, he's the angel of the Lord. He's the one who's over the God. He, he's the God of the angel armies. He's the one who's leading the charge in the battle. I don't care how weird or how dark or how demonic your life is or your world is or your kids get, there is always hope because we serve the king who is the head of the armies of heaven, amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.